Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm so glad you're listening. Well, today I wanted to talk about a few great reasons to put your faith in Jesus. You can put your faith in Christ with a great foundation in logic and reasoning. Truth exists. If you didn't believe that, you probably wouldn't be tuned in to today's show. Because apparently, even when you listen to the radio, you usually believe that there is something that you'll get out of it. If truth did not exist, then there would be nothing for you to get from a show like this, or from a class, or from a book, or from any other resource. Right? We all intrinsically know truth exists. In fact, you know that every time you try to argue. And coincidentally, every time you argue that truth doesn't exist, you believe that's true, which insinuates you believe there is truth. Even when people deny the existence of truth, they illustrate that they believe there is a truth, and in some sense, they're trying to argue that we should discover that truth. They're saying that we should discover the truth, that there is no truth, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But what I want to say today is, if truth exists, and we all intuitively know that it does, how can we come to a perspective on the reality of the world around us that's in line with what is true? Because truth at its core would be reality. What is real is what is true. Truth exists. So what is truth? Ravi Zacharias puts it this way. He says a correct philosophy must be logically consistent, empirically adequate, and experientially relevant. Excuse me if that sounded a bit wordy. I'll break it down. Basically, any worldview that you have needs to be logically consistent. It cannot contradict itself. It cannot say one thing and then say another thing, but it must be logically consistent with itself. It also must be empirically adequate. It must line up with the data and evidence that we observe around us. Faith and science can go hand in hand, and I think they should. They are not mutually exclusive. Science at its core has tons of different assumptions taken on faith, and faith is always strengthened by a better understanding of the reality around us. I think the two are mutually complementary, and we should not see them as entities that are at war, but rather as organisms or individuals that exist best when together. So a philosophy must be logically consistent, empirically adequate, and finally, experientially relevant. I must be able to live it out in my daily life. Right? If a philosophy has no application to my daily life, then it is not a very good philosophy on the world around me. Once we discover a worldview that is logically consistent, empirically adequate, and experientially relevant, Ravi Zacharias continues saying that all its answers must individually correspond with reality, and all its answers must be coherent with each other. And that philosophy must address the issues of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where did I come from? Why am I here? How should I live? Where will I go? And I want to propose to you this morning that only Jesus' answers satisfy those criteria. I think we'll see why. But it's not just me saying that. Jesus himself said that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claimed to be the only way. Either he was right or he was wrong. That is what he claimed. That's an exclusive claim. Some people say, oh, that's so exclusive. It's so intolerant. It's so uncaring. Well, the reality is 
all truth is exclusive. When I say 2 plus 2 equals 4, that is very exclusive to anyone with the answer that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Truth by nature is exclusive. So it's not okay for us to think that if something is exclusive, it must be wrong. In reality, truth is always exclusive in that way. So the main alternative to Christ or faith in God is the theory of evolution, which proponents would use to try to come up with an atheistic or a naturalistic explanation for the universe. We've talked about the five reasons naturalism fails in the past. We've talked on this show about how the Big Bang points to God. You can get all those shows at eternityimpact.blogspot.com. That's eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Just click the God Solution tab, and you'll hear some great information and some great discussions about why the evidence truly does lead to God. I'm not going to get into all that today. We don't have the time for that. When we look at the main alternative to faith, that of naturalism and specifically evolution, we quickly see that it does not correspond with reality, at least in a way that answers all the questions that we would need it to answer. For example, the evolutionary theory cannot be tested by the scientific method. It's not a science. Different aspects of it, like natural selection, which is a reality and a truth, can be tested. However, we cannot make the extrapolations that people make to have that answer all the questions of origins and where we came from. Even if biological evolution were a reality, and that's a different discussion for a different day, we know that evolution does not give an answer for where this material and where this matter came from in the first place. And according to the second law of thermodynamics, if it were eternal, which it would have to be if it didn't have a creator or a creation point, it wouldn't be in any order like we see it today. So we know that's not the case. We know that there was a time in the past where this universe came into existence in a miraculous way, where the matter that you see around you was created miraculously in a way that science cannot define or describe. And not just that science hasn't come up with an answer, but logically science cannot come up with an answer for where this matter came from because it would defy the very first two laws of thermodynamics. So the main alternative to faith, that of naturalism or evolution, falls apart. Evolution has no mechanism. Natural selection, which we mentioned a minute ago, is not a mechanism for speciation, but rather a mechanism for diversity within a species that already exists. Stephen Jay Gould put it this way, and I know a lot of my atheist counterparts would say this is quote mining, but go ahead and look at the article that this came from and see what he was really talking about. He says the theory of evolution by gradual mutation is effectively dead despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. The greatest evolutionist since Darwin is telling you that the theory of evolution like you've been taught in schools is effectively dead despite its persistence in the textbooks. Those are his words, not mine. Now, he wasn't trying to say you should all be creationists. I'm going to be honest. He was trying to give credibility to his own theory of evolution, punctuated equilibrium, which admittedly had no mechanism and admittedly was in just as bad a footing as evolution was. But he had the integrity to admit that there was a problem. Evolution defies statistics. We could go into the statistics issue, but we just don't have the time. The bottom line is that the alternative doesn't work. We're here, and the matter around you is here, and the organization and order and beauty and nature around you is here, and those things contradict what science says we should see in the universe. 
Now they're here, and they're here for a reason, and that points to not a chaotic, accidental origin, but an intentional origin decided and initiated by a creator himself, by God. The universe is full of intricate design, and design always implies a designer. So what are some reasons to believe in the Bible? Because just because a creator exists doesn't mean that it has to be the God of the Bible. And you could correctly say, well, I believe that a creator created all this, but that doesn't mean that it was the God you believe in, Nate. Well, there is good evidence that it is the God I'm talking about today, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So here are a few reasons to believe in the Bible. It is logically consistent, and it corresponds with reality. The Bible is scientifically accurate, which comes as a surprise to many people. The Bible describes radioactive decay in such precision that it's close to most textbook definitions, almost word for word, that you would find today. That was written in Scripture in 2 Peter 3.10. Modern science did not discover radioactivity until 1896, almost 2,000 years after the Bible defined it. The Bible talks about hydrologic cycles of evaporation and condensation, It talks about atmospheric jet streams. It talks about Earth's spherical shape. A lot of people say the Bible said that the Earth was flat. There's nowhere the Bible says that the Earth is flat. Interestingly, on a side note, I recently read the Koran, and the Koran says that the Earth is flat and that the sky is held up on pillars above the Earth. Now, the Bible says nothing like that. The Bible says the Earth is spherical. You could look at that in Isaiah 40, verse 22. The Bible says that the universe is expanding. This wasn't discovered until the late 1920s by Hubble, and it's actually one of the key pieces of information that virtually proves the reality of the Big Bang. And this is mentioned in Scripture at least six different places that the universe is expanding. Unbelievable. So the expansion of the universe, discovered in 1929, was mentioned in Scripture 4,000 years ago. The Bible says that Earth's foundation is hung on nothing, Copernicus established this in 1543, 3,500 years after it was written in the Bible. The Bible says that air has weight. Lavoisier discovered this in 1778, 3,800 years after it was written in the Bible. The Bible talks about hydrothermic or freshwater vents in the ocean. This is mentioned in multiple places and was not discovered until 1977. The Bible tells us the biological law that like begets like. That's in Genesis. And we've discovered that in modern biology, that one species won't give birth to a different species, that like begets like. The Bible also tells us a scientific reality that was also prophetic, that one event could be seen across the world, an impossibility then but now possible through modern science. You can look at that in both Matthew 24 and Revelation 11. They both talk about a future event, the return of Christ, being seen by everyone on this planet. Nothing could be physically seen by everyone on this planet except through live TV. So this was a scientific reality, but also a prophecy in Scripture. So as we conclude this short section on science in the Bible, and there's a whole lot more, believe me, the Bible talks about entropy and many other things. It also is prophetically accurate. That's a good transition point for prophecy. 
Many religious texts claim to be prophetically accurate. They make prophetic claims. A recent example is Harold Camping, who claimed the earth would come to an end on May 21st. The earth did not come to an end. All through history, there have been people like Camping that make prophecies about the future in a religious context. And those prophecies rarely come true. And if they come true, it's only through fudging and trying to get around what really happened. Okay? Now, in the Bible, we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. And they have all, as far as they could up till this point, come true. Some of those are still coming true. One example is Israel becoming a nation in one day. Not only did the Bible say that Israel would become a nation in the last days, but it said that that would happen in a single day. Exactly what happened in 1948 by Declaration of the United Nations. You can read that prophecy in the last chapter of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Now let's talk about some other prophecy in the Bible. Jesus alone fulfilled over 300 prophecies. The odds of him fulfilling just eight are one in 10 to the 17th power. Impossible for any human. And he fulfilled over 300. It would take more faith to say that Jesus is not the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament than it would take to agree with that statement. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. For example, his crucifixion was prophesied 1,000 years before crucifixion was even invented. Yet he was crucified, according to prophecy. Alexander the Great was prophesied in such detail in Daniel chapter 8 that critics for years used to say that it was post-written history because at that time, no manuscripts of the Old Testament had been discovered, which predated Alexander the Great. So critics just said, well, it claims to be prophecy, but in reality, it's post-written history. That's how accurate it was, that a great warrior would come from the West, that he would die an early death, that his empire would be split into four empires, and that those would be recombined into two. Exactly what happened with Alexander the Great. The rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple by Cyrus was prophesied in the Bible 100 years before Jerusalem was destroyed and 100 years before Cyrus was even born. So scripture prophesies not just that an event will occur, but the name of the person that will do it 100 years before it happens. Tyre's destruction is prophesied in such detail that modern textbooks often describe Tyre with almost the exact definitions that we see in Scripture. Example, a place that's as bare as a rock, where fishermen dry their nets. It's exactly what we see in Scripture, exactly what we see today. Those are just a few of the many hundreds of different prophecies that we see in Scripture. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. We're talking about some great reasons to believe the Bible and why we can believe it with confidence. You can listen to The God Solution every week on 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and at kdur.org online. I'm so glad you're listening. So let's get right back to why you can trust the Bible. The Bible is historically accurate. The Bible talks about real people, real places, real events, all corroborated by archaeology and history. Here are just a few examples. The Bible talks about the Hittites. The critics for years condemned the Bible's description of this group, saying that they never existed. The Bible makes up this group of people that never existed. Well, the Bible said it, and archaeology discovered it. Archaeological digs have since proven their existence, and they have found cities and their entire language and much more evidence for the Hittites. A lot of religious texts claim to be historical, but they don't make historically verifiable claims 
One example that comes to mind, and I don't want this to be a show where we just put down other religions. I never want it just to be kind of like a fight like that. I want to talk about why I do believe in Jesus, not why I don't believe in others. But as an example, the Book of Mormon tells of an entire continent of North American, Hebrew-speaking, Jewish Native Americans. Even though there's never been a Hebrew artifact uncovered in North America, even though Native American languages do not trace back to Hebrew, and even though their DNA does not trace back to Israel whatsoever. So it makes historical claims, the Book of Mormon that is, that are not verifiable. We don't see that kind of historical inaccuracy in the Bible. When the Bible makes historical claims, we can go verify those archaeologically and discover them. The Bible is full of mathematical and prophetic codes. There are some interesting facets of the Bible when it gets to numbers. One thing that I do like is the mathematical codes and the prime number multiples that we find in Scripture. One example would be Genesis 1-1, the first verse in the Bible. There are seven words with 28 letters. The numerical equivalent of the nouns in the verse adds up to 777. Both the Hebrew and the Greek, each letter would have a numerical equivalent, so you can add those up and come up with numbers that represent each of those words. The numerical value of the only verb is 203, another multiple of seven. The first three words contain the subject and have 14 letters, and the other four words are the object and have 14 letters. The words for the two objects each have seven letters. So Genesis 1-1, and I just named a few, but it has over 30 multiples of seven. Statisticians say the chances of that happening are one in 33 trillion, and that's not just the case for the first verse in the Bible, but for many more as well. Matthew 1, 1 through 11, the first passage in the New Testament, has 49 words with 266 letters, 140 are vowels, 126 are consonants. Of the 49 words, 28 begin with a vowel, 21 begin with a consonant, 7 end with a vowel, 42 end with a consonant, 14 occur only once, 35 occur more than once, 42 are nouns, 7 are not. Again, we see numerous multiples of 7 in this first passage in the New Testament, just like we saw in the first verse in the Old Testament. In 1882, Ivan Panin, a Harvard mathematician, provided 43,000 pages of mathematical codes found in the Old and New Testaments to the Nobel Foundation as his evidence that the Bible is God's word. The Nobel Foundation replied, quote, as far as our investigation has proceeded, we find the evidence overwhelmingly in favor of such a statement. Here's something else that's extremely interesting when we think of these numerical or prophetic codes in the Old Testament. Rabbi Wiesmandel found an amazing sequential code during World War II. At 50-letter intervals in both Genesis and Exodus, we see spelled out T-O-R-A. So letter 50 is T, letter 100 is O, letter 150 is R, and letter 200 is A. The Hebrew word for God's word, Torah. Again, in Exodus, we see the same thing. At 50-letter intervals, Torah is spelt out. We get to Leviticus, and there's nothing at 50-letter intervals. It's totally blank. So you go on to Numbers and Deuteronomy, look again at the 50-letter intervals, and we see A-rot spelled out, Torah backwards, A-R-O-T, in both Numbers and Deuteronomy. So you look at Genesis and Exodus, spelling at 50-letter hidden intervals, T-O-R-A, or Torah, the Hebrew for the Word of God, and then you skip Leviticus and go to Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you see Torah spelled backwards at 50-letter intervals in each of those books. So you kind of look at it from afar and think, 
Why is everything pointing to the middle book, Leviticus, where nothing is written at 50-letter intervals? And upon closer investigation, at seven-letter intervals, we find YHWH, the name for God in the Old Testament, spelled out. Unbelievable. And statisticians have said that the chances of that are one in three million, that those codes would be engineered into the text in a way that nobody knew for millennia and only discovered during World War II. Some people have talked about prophetic codes embedded throughout the text, but that's a little weird for me, a little fishy, so I'm not even going to go there. A phenomenal reason that we can believe God's word is that the Bible's authors agree. The Bible was written on three continents in three different languages over 1,500 years, over 40 generations by 40 authors of different backgrounds, social status, languages, and ethnicities. Yet all those authors agree with each other about the realities of both the physical and spiritual universe that we encounter. You can get 40 Christians in church today to agree on those things. Yet somehow these 40 different authors in Scripture agreed on all these different things. So the Bible's authors agree, and that to me is a profound evidence for the authenticity of what the Bible says, and that it was authored by God using those people. The Bible is textually authentic. Here is a quick comparison with Homer's Iliad, the next closest textually accurate manuscript. The New Testament has copies from as early as AD 125, or at least parts of copies or parts of manuscripts that go back to shortly after it was written. And most critics even would agree that most of the New Testament was written within 25 to 70 years of Jesus' life. So the New Testament is textually more authentic than any ancient manuscript. It has copies that go back closer to the original date of their writing than any other ancient manuscript. Homer's Iliad is the next closest authentic manuscript, and its earliest copy is from 400 years after it was written. Not even close to the New Testament. The New Testament was written within the lifespans of Jesus' contemporaries. And again, we've talked about this in the past. Just about a month ago, we talked about why we can believe the New Testament. And shortly before that, we did an analysis of Bart Ehrman's claims on this show. Again, you could get that at eternityimpact.blogspot.com. The New Testament has 24,000 early copies in various different languages. Some of those have been translated from the original language, from Greek into Latin, for example, versus the Iliad's 643 copies. So no matter how you cut it, the number of manuscripts and the early date from which we have those manuscripts make the New Testament far and away the most accurate manuscript in all of ancient times. And for all the different people that always say, well, we can't trust the Bible because it's been translated so many different times, this just completely disproves that statement because we have the original copies. So it could be translated to infinity, but we can always go back to the originals and see what was written. The Bible is textually authentic. Finally, the Bible has the power to change human beings. Not only is the Bible logically consistent and empirically adequate, but it is experientially relevant. It has the power to change human beings. Jesus has changed and transformed my life and countless millions others through the message written in God's word, the Bible. Most of Jesus' disciples and many early church founders died for this message. And coincidentally, a lot of people die for their faith, but nobody dies for a known lie. Had they been making this up, they would have been dying for a known lie, which nobody does. 
Simon Greeley, famed law professor at Harvard Law School, said, you may choose at the end of your investigative process of the New Testament to say, I choose not to believe it, but you may not reserve the right to say, because there is not enough evidence to believe it. The entire Bible points to one person and one event, Jesus and salvation. Jesus alone accurately described the human condition and the remedy. Malcolm Muggeridge said the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. Nothing could be more true than that. More people were killed in the last century than in all others combined. Jesus provided a remedy for that condition, a free gift of salvation. That remedy is experientially relevant. I can do that. I can accept a gift. I can't become perfect. I can't change myself, but I can receive a free gift. It's experientially relevant. Jesus impacted history more than any other human being that has ever lived, and he triumphed over death. Again, we've talked about that in the past, and the overwhelming historical evidence for his resurrection and for the reality that he conquered death. And then he promised you that if you put your trust in him, he will raise you up as well. Jesus alone has authority to describe the means of salvation and eternal life because he alone has actually gone there and done that. He alone has actually conquered death. Jesus' message corresponds with reality. He alone hit the nail on the head. The Bible truly is logically consistent. Only Jesus' description of our condition is empirically correct, and only Jesus' remedy is experientially relevant. All those characteristics that Ravi Zacharias said we need to look for when discovering or when searching for a correct worldview are found in the Bible and in all Jesus said about salvation. So naturalism can't account for the matter or design in the universe. Design always points to a designer. The Bible alone provides coherent answers to the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The implications, there is a God, and he's the God of the Bible, and he came to this earth as the man Jesus, and he provided the only means of salvation that exists. Just like we started out with today, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can now look at a lot of the evidence, and again, today we were just scratching the surface, and realize Jesus alone had the authority to make that claim, because he himself was truth. He himself was reality. He himself could tell us what is true, being truth himself. If you don't know who Jesus is, Jesus is calling out to you today, saying, you have good reasons to trust in me. Faith is not just a leap that you take into the unknown, but rather a confident step that you take. Everything you do in life comes from faith. In fact, if you're sitting in a chair right now, like me, you're sitting there by faith that that chair will hold you up. Every time you work an hour at work expecting to get paid, you're working by faith. Every time you put a letter in the mail, you're putting it there by faith that it's going to get to its destination. All we do, we do by faith. There's an aspect of faith in all that we do. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. See, here is the deal. God says that he loves you with an everlasting love, but that you and I are sinful and separated from him. My sin separates me from God. It literally keeps me from a relationship with him. So even though he loves me, my own sin and selfishness separate me from him. But Jesus came and he died on that cross and he conquered death and he rose again. And when he died on that cross as a perfect man and as God in human flesh, 
He paid for all of my sin, past, present, and future, so that when I put my trust in him and receive the gift of his salvation that he offers, I can have complete forgiveness and the guarantee of an eternity with him in heaven, the guarantee of eternal life. If you're at that point where you want Christ to come into your life, where you want to receive him and let him become your Savior and your Lord, you can simply say, I need you, God. Today I place my faith in you and accept your free gift of salvation. Thank you for being my Savior and Lord. And he says at that very moment, he will come into your life never to leave again. Well, no matter where you're at today, I would like to invite you to come to church. If you've never been or if you've been your whole life, I would encourage you to check out Calvary International. They meet at 10 a.m. this morning on the corner of College Drive and Fifth Avenue. It's the gray building with the blue roof. You can't miss it. If you've ever driven down College Drive, you've seen it. The gray building with the blue roof at 10 a.m. I hope you get a chance to visit, and if you do, tell Raymond and Berlinda that I say hi. Well, thanks so much for listening to The God Solution today. I hope you're walking away with some great reasons to put your trust in Christ. Like I said before, we just barely scratched the surface today. We could talk for hours on reasons to believe. Please tune in next week to listen to more and get all of our previous shows at eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Thanks again for listening. Have a great Sunday. (laughs) 